Verse 7. Still talking about Amaziah. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jockfield to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. Do you see what's happening? Amaziah is the king of the south. He ends up having victory on the battlefield. Edom was to the south of Judah. Amaziah invades Edom and ends up beating the Edomites, kills 10,000 of them, takes more territory for the southern kingdom. Well, he comes back from that battle thumping his chest a little bit. He's just had a victory on the battlefield. So what does he think he should do now? Let's strike while the iron's hot and let's invade the north. Let's see if we can take a little bit, of, little bit more territory. So he sends a messenger up to challenge the northern king to a fight. Now, I need to back up. Uh, this same story is told in 2 Chronicles, and we're given a little bit more detail in 2 Chronicles. So here's an important thing we're told in 2 Chronicles. When Amaziah was going to battle against Edom, he didn't think they could beat the Edomites on their own. And so he actually hired a bunch of soldiers from the northern kingdom to come fight with him. So he paid the money to come down and fight in the battle with him. Well, just before the battle was about to begin, God sent a prophet to Amaziah who said, look, God's going to be with you in this war. God's going to give you victory, but he's not going to give you victory if you keep those northern soldiers with you. God doesn't want you depending on them. God wants you depending on him. And so right before the battle began, Amaziah sent all of those northern soldiers back home. Well, they were furious because if you were hired as a mercenary soldier to go fight, not only did you get upfront money, but what was the real perk that you were going to fight for? All the plunder. So if you're going to battle, that meant whoever you killed, you got to take their stuff. Any cities that you took, you got to go in and loot the cities. So these soldiers have marched all the way down to Edom, and just before the battle begins, they're sent home, and now they're not going home with any treasure. So they were irate. So they decided they were going to get treasure one way or another. So as they were marching back through Judah to go back home, they just took treasure from Judah. So they started invading Judean cities. They killed a couple thousand Judean citizens. They stole their stuff on their way back home. So now Amaziah comes back from the battle feeling like he could conquer the world because he just had a victory. He finds out that these northern soldiers have looted some of his territory and he decides they can't, they can't, nobody can stop me now, right? This is that sort of pride thing where your chest starts puffing out because you've had one victory. And normally a southern king would never fight a northern king. Why? How many tribes made up the southern kingdom? How many tribes made up the northern kingdom? Ten. So the northern kingdom has the southern kingdom vastly outnumbered. But isn't this one of the things that pride does? What does pride do when it comes to how you view yourself? You are invincible. It gives you foggy vision because humility means you see yourself in light of God's holiness and in light of your own sin. So you see yourself for who you really are. You see yourself for who you are in light of who God is. But pride means I no longer see God for who he is. I no longer see myself for who I am. So my vision of myself gets awfully hazy. And that's why pride makes us make such stupid decisions. So he decides he can take on the northern king. Here's how the northern king responds. 
And Jehoash, king of Israel, this is the king in the north, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son his wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall? You and Judah with you. So what does the king of the north say to the king of the south? He gives him this fable. This is a very widely used fable. You can find it in other ancient writings where he says, hey, there was, there was a, um, a thorn bush that started having a conversation with the cedar tree. And that thorn bush started talking to that cedar tree like they were equals. When all of a sudden a wild beast came walking through the forest and just like that squashed the thorn bush. Who's the cedar tree and who's the thorn bush in the story? The northern kingdom is the cedar and the southern is the thorn. And he's basically saying thorn bushes ought to watch how they talk. Because if they're not careful, they'll end up getting squashed by the cedar tree. So he's, he's essentially saying, you're punching out of your weight class here. It would be like watching a boxing match and watching some flyweight fighter. You know, flyweights are the really little guys, 110, 115 pound fighters. And a guy wins a boxing match in the flyweight division and then gets on the TV afterwards and starts challenging the heavyweight champion to a fight. Well, it's great that you could beat a flyweight, but you're not ready to to fight a heavyweight yet, right? That's what this king is saying. You're, You're stepping out of your weight class here. Now, what's good is he is trying to talk him out of fighting. What's bad is he doesn't do it, and this isn't exactly a soft answer, turns away wrath kind of thing, right? You already have a king that is eaten up with ego, and he basically smacks him down and says, you mess with me, and I'm going to wear you out. Well, this prideful king, is now his ego is now backed into a corner. And what do prideful people do when they feel like their pride has been assaulted? Y'all aren't saying that by experience, right? You've heard that when prideful people have their ego assaulted, they go on the attack. And that's what he does. So here's what happens next. Verse 11. But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah king of Judah the son of Jehoash the son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh and he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate 400 cubits that's about 600 feet and he took all the gold and silver all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now this is, this is one of the low points in the divided kingdom because what you got here is you got, you got two nations that are family. All of these folks are descendants of Abraham. God's plan was these 12 tribes would be together, fighting enemies together, worshiping God together, and now you have these people fighting each other. And what ends up happening to the southern kingdom? They get demolished. Soldiers are killed. Others are taken hostage. Even the king himself is taken hostage. And then the king of the north marches on Jerusalem, tears down a 600-foot segment of their wall, 
goes into the temple of Jerusalem, all of the gold and silver, everything of value in the temple, he takes back home for himself, and even the king is taken hostage. But we could look at that and go, well, the king sort of deserved it, right? He was the one who made the stupid decision that led to all of this. But the tragedy is, the king deserved it, but his decision didn't just affect him, did it? Who else did his decision affect? It affected his family, it affected the whole nation. You have people who are killed, people who are taken hostage, people who have their homes destroyed, people who are left destitute, all because of his prideful decision. So we, we gotta hold these two things in balance. We made the point earlier that none of us are condemned before God because of the sins of our ancestors or of others. People beneath us are not condemned by God because of our sin. But that's different from saying those around us do feel the consequences of our sin. So when, when we make foolish decisions, the people close to us will inevitably deal with some of the results of those decisions. That's, that's the way it goes. And so what happens here is there are lots of people who are left completely broken. Think about it now. When we're talking about soldiers being killed in battle, these aren't just nameless, faceless people. These were their sons and their fathers and their husbands and their brothers who were all killed because of this foolish king's pride. Now, there's one other little component I, I'd want to add into this. Back when Amaziah was fighting against Edom, and after he had defeated the Edomites, one of the things we're told that he did, let me read it. This is Second Chronicles chapter 25. Listen to what happened in that battle. It says, now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? So it was as he talked with him that the king said to him, have we made you the king's counselor? Cease. Why should you be killed? And then the prophet ceased and said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you've done this and have not heeded my advice. Do you see what happened right before this defeat? When he defeated the Edomites, he saw all of their beautiful silver and gold idols and he decided he was going to take those idols, carry them back home with him and set him up along with the worship of Yahweh and begin to worship those idols too. Well, God mercifully sent a prophet to him. He sent a prophet to say, hey, you're sinning against God, you better stop. And how did he respond to the prophet? He basically said, who made you my counselor? I'm sorry, did I ask your opinion on this? If you say one more thing, you're going to lose your life. And we could just back up and say, what's another pretty obvious sign of pride? What's one of the signs that, let me figure out the right way to say this. I was going to say pride might be a problem. Pride's always a problem. But one of, the, one of the ways of measuring how big of a problem pride is in my life is by evaluating how I respond to correction. When somebody points out something that I did wrong, right, when, when you're in an argument with your spouse and they point out something that you, you didn't handle that situation right and you know you didn't handle that situation right, but your immediate response when you're given correction is to blow up and get defensive, that is a sure fire undeniable sign that pride is a huge problem in your life. 
Okay, that's one of the marks. That's one of the warning signs that's going on in Amaziah's life before this battle begins. So he's hauled off. King Amaziah is defeated and hauled away as a captive. And we're not told how long he's kept, but it, it appears to be a good while. And eventually he's released and he comes back where he continues to reign as king. But let me just plant a thought in your mind. What do you think his approval rating is when he comes back to reign as king? Do you think most of the people are pleased with this king? He had just led them into a completely unnecessary battle. He had got their sons and husbands killed. Their homes had been wrecked. The city of Jerusalem has been ransacked because of what he's done. So even when he comes back to the throne, the animosity the people feel toward him is going to still be there. Okay, so, and we'll see the effects of that here in just a minute. All right, look back in your text. We'll do this real quickly because we'll come back to this. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash, that's the king in the north, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, just hold that thought in your mind. So Jehoash in the north dies. Jeroboam, this is actually Jeroboam the second, there's already been a Jeroboam, becomes king in the north. Just leave that for a second. Go back to the south, verse 17. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And here it comes. And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. And then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elith and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his father. So how, how does all of this end for Amaziah? I just mentioned he ends up getting out of captivity, he comes back, he gets back on the throne to reign as king, but the people's animosity toward him never goes away. Okay? The, the havoc that he wreaked on the country in his pride continues to boil just underneath the surface until eventually they hatch a plan and they execute him. So, so where, does, where does pride lead to in the life of Amaziah? It, it leads to death, destruction, the city of Jerusalem's ruin, scores of people are killed, and ultimately it, it leads to his own demise. Listen to Proverbs. I might not put it in. I might have it later. All right, let's go to the next king. 2 Kings 14, pick up in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Okay, so Amaziah's died. Now we've shifted back to the northern kingdom. And we're told that this man named Jeroboam becomes king. Now it's already a little bit troubling that he's named Jeroboam. Because do you remember where does that name come from? That was the very first king of the northern empire. That was the king who started all the idolatry. The king who invented his own hybrid religion to keep the people at home. Well, this guy is now named after that first evil king. So what kind of king was he? Verse 24, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So Jeroboam, who reigns in the north, is an evil king, which makes the next few verses a little surprising. Verse 25. So here's what this evil king does. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Okay, now just stop for a minute. So we just saw that he was an evil king, but what was his reign like? How would you sum it up? Very successful, very prosperous. That where they describe the land that he took, it means he expanded the borders of the northern kingdom to what they were way back in the days of Solomon. And so it seems like they're returning to their former glory, the economy's doing well, they're capturing new territory, um, the rising tides are kind of lifting all ships in Israel. But what's happening underneath the surface? Underneath the surface, this is an evil king and the nation is drifting further and further away from God. So why is God allowing all of this good stuff to happen? How would you answer that? He's got a plan. I think the way Romans 2 would say it is that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. That, that there's often times in our lives where God shows, just even in our rebellion, he shows kindness. He loads us down with good things. And the purpose of all that is we would see all of God's blessings and go, man, God is so good. Why in the world would I rebel against such a good God? And our hearts would be melted by the goodness of God. But that's not what happens here. God is pouring out kindness, but their hearts aren't melted by it. Their hearts are actually hardened by it. Right? It's that, that well-used cliche. Same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. So God's kindness is meant to melt them before God and turn them back to God in repentance. But instead, they take God's kindness as the sign, we're doing fine. God must not care with how we're living, and as a result, they're just barreling faster and faster and faster toward God's judgment. Okay, so that's the story of Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam the second, and the evil that he inflicted. And, and by the way, uh, did you notice a name that you're probably familiar with there? They, they ex God expanded their territories, not because they were so good, but because he had declared it, and who had he declared it through? Did you see that name? Jonah. This is the same Jonah that the book of Jonah is about. So, so Jonah's ministry didn't begin with him going to Nineveh, calling them to repent. Jonah already was an established prophet in the northern kingdom. God had even delivered good news through Jonah. He had delivered through Jonah this message that God was going to expand their territory and give them all this land to the north. So Jonah already had a, a name for himself as this prophet who had brought good news to the people of Israel before he ever ended up going off to Nineveh. Okay, and there's a couple other, just to connect a few more dots. There are several other prophets whose ministry coincided with this time. 
So Amos, if you read the book of Amos, Amos was brought on the scene by God during this time where there's so much prosperity and the people are getting fat on God's abundance as they're ignoring God. Okay, so Amos comes on the scene sounding warnings. Another prophet who comes on the scenes during, during all of this is the prophet Hosea. Now what do we know Hosea for? What's that? Yeah, you remember God, Hosea is the prophet who God has married this woman named Gomer who even after their marriage basically sells herself into prostitution and is unfaithful. And that whole scene is a picture, Gomer is a picture with Hosea of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so you have all of these, God is also in all of this using Hosea as this prophet who comes on the scene and keeps warning. Hosea and Amos both make statements about God's abundance and all of God's blessings and how in spite of God's blessings, they're continuing to harden their hearts, continuing to turn away from God. And they're warning the people God's judgment is coming. Okay, so I'll just say again, uh, prosperity is not always the mark of God's approval. There's often times in our lives when God shows kindness, God shows blessings, and it's a means that God intends to use actually to melt us in light of his goodness. It's a means that God uses. God can, God can try to turn us to repentance through discipline, right, through hardship, through his heavy hand, but God is gracious, and oftentimes God uses goodness and blessings as his means of, of calling us back to repentance. And they did not respond to that here. Okay, so again, you see how pride shows up in Jeroboam's life? They think everything's going well. We must be doing fine. We can handle this on our own. We don't, we don't need God. Okay, so I think pride is the story. So just remember the, remember the John Stock quote. At every stage of our Christian development, Pride is the greatest enemy. Humility is our greatest friend. Or the better line would be the line that gets repeated several times in the New Testament. God, what's, how's the line go? God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Okay, we want to position ourselves in God's grace. And it's humility that draws his gaze. It's humility that pleases God. And we could just tack on the ultimate demonstration of that's the passage we read this morning in Philippians 2, right? The footsteps we're called to walk in are the footsteps of this Savior who humbled himself, who walked away from the glories of heaven and the privileges that were his as God and entered into humanity and didn't just take on flesh but came as a servant and didn't just come as a servant but came to die and didn't just come to die but came to die the most ignominious death imaginable, the death of the cross, Right, those are the steps. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mind. It's a mindset of humility before God, not pride. It's the, the John Owen quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You could make that specific. Be killing pride or pride will be killing you. Pride is destructive. That's 2 Kings 14. So we'll stop there. Good timing. So let me, let me say a prayer for us and we'll dismiss.